Okay. For this evening's talk, I decided today to talk about unceremonious Buddhism. <laughs> In other words, that many people sometimes see the ceremonies in religions like Buddhism as having no meaning and sometimes being a barrier towards the real understanding. And I know that many modern people, the more ceremonies they have, the more etiquette they feel they're obliged to keep, then the more or the less likely they are to avail themselves of the beautiful teachings of uh, temples, uh, religions like this. And I know that uh, some years ago, just uh, a couple of Buddhists from Perth, they were travelling around Australia and they went to Brisbane and they were looking for the local Buddhist centre, find a place where they can listen to some Dharma, some teachings, do a bit of meditation. And so not knowing the area, they rang up one temple and they say, any meditation? Anything going on there? And then straight away they asked, well, what tradition are you from? And they said, oh, we're from... Theravada, which is you know, our tradition here. And the person on the end of the phone said, oh, I'm not into that ethnic Buddhism, <laughs> they called it. As if like, you know, Theravada was you know, just ethnic and just culturally based. And recently, actually uh, yesterday, I was uh, called up by one of our monks in Sydney and he was saying they just got some uh, document from the uh, immigration in Canberra they wanted to uh, find out what are the different types of Buddhism in Australia. And we asked, what should we call us? You know, is this Thai Buddhism or Sri Lankan Buddhism or Cambodian Buddhism? Is it Theravada? Is it Mahayana? What type of Buddhism is it? I just told him to put down, well, it's certainly not Thai Buddhism. We've been trying to untie this Buddhism here for a long time. <laughs> it's not Sri Lankan or Burmese. And it's just Australian Buddhism. So because we're Theravada, I said, call it Australian Theravada. And it means that, you know, as Buddhism goes from place to place, we do adapt slightly. We make new ceremonies, make new ways of doing things to adapt to the local population and to bring people together. Because I know that you know, many of you have come from all sorts of different lands. And, you know, we do keep some of our culture, but there's some of it we leave behind. And, I know that many sort of Thai people have come here, they lived here for many years. When they go back to Thailand, they think it's home, but it's changed. Just the same way that I was born in London. Going back to London now, you change, it's not the same, and you're not really English anymore. It's the same with each one of us. We all change our cultures. And when we come to a place like this, we want to have some sort of essence of Buddhism. But also that sometimes the ceremonies are helpful. And I know that if you don't have any ceremonies at all, you know, you, if you just like muddle through, then you've got like not real Buddhism, you've got not the middle way, you get the muddled way. And that's some, sometimes what happens. You know, sometimes, especially Westerners, they throw away so much, there's hardly anything left. And that's called the muddled way. However, one of the nice things about this centre over here, we do muddle through, but I mean, this is like a, a core, you know, what everyone can actually recognise as being Buddhist. And that's why we've been very successful here, you know, getting people from you know, all the different ethnic communities coming together, whether it's a Malaysian, Singaporean Buddhist, 
the Thais, the Sri Lankans, the Burmese, and there's look around me, there's people from all of those communities here. The Cambodians come along and invite us to go to places, the Laos. And so it's been a great success actually to get all the ethnic communities together, plus the Westerners. And why is that? <laughs> it's because that we managed actually to present an authentic, genuine Buddhism, which actually has some ceremonies, but takes away the meaningless ones, so we can get to the heart of the matter. And this is really what I want to talk about this evening, about what, what are these ceremonies, not just in Buddhism, but in other religions, and why do they sometimes create so much difficulty for people? Because people, they just they want to actually to find some meaning in life, some wonderful tools, but for which they can progress and create greater happiness in their life. And when I started looking at Buddhism myself, and look at the story of the Buddha, I saw this is actually exactly what the Buddha did and how Buddhism started. You know, he was uh, born into a, an age where it wasn't Hinduism. It's wrong to say that Buddhism came from Hinduism because the Hinduism as we know it today only developed much, much, much later. It was this Brahmanism, this... Uh, uh, religion, if you want to call it that, built on the, the ancient Vedas, much of it just ceremonies of sacrifice. If you're unlucky, just go and you know, kill a couple of cows or, or whatever, and therefore you'll be lucky, you'll be propitiating the gods. And all those little ceremonies had been there for thousands of years, or at least hundreds of years, by the time of the Buddha. And like many people today, they were rebelling against those ceremonies. Why? They'd become meaningless. And it was the ceremonies which were actually stopping people going to the heart of their ancient religion. So the Buddha rebelled against that and made things incredibly simple. The trouble is when we make them simple, then people make ceremonies of simplicity. And it's terrible just the way that human beings, they love ceremonies so much that when we just do something very, very simple, like have a cup of tea, and then we make the tea ceremony out of that. <laughs> There's nothing to it at all. It's like one of my favourite stories. One of my favourite stories, and I think some of you have heard this before, is that the the uh, the chicken ceremony. That chicken ceremony was developed when one person had just had a terrible argument with their wife, and went to their favourite monk to ask, say, look, I've said some terrible words to my wife, I'm just so fed up with this. When people do have arguments, they may not admit it, but both sides feel terrible. And so the husband went to the favourite monk, I feel so bad what I said to my wife, can you actually do some ceremony or help me sort of you know, overcome my sense of guilt? And he said, yeah, I've got the very ceremony for you, the chicken ceremony one of the famous Buddhist ceremonies and we should really do this more often here. Whenever you've had an argument with somebody you can come and do the chicken ceremony. And the chicken ceremony is this, he said to this man, he said, go to the market and buy a dead chicken from the market and bring it back to me in this temple. And on the way to this temple I want you to pluck it. Take all the feathers out and throw them away because you know, when you come to the temple I want to pluck Chicken. But make sure it's dead first. Because <laughs> we're compassionate. So, <laughs> so, this guy didn't know what he was doing. Like many ceremonies, you haven't got a clue what they're all about. Because the monk says it, okay, we'll do it. 
And so he went to the market, he bought an old chicken, and he sort of, on the way home, he pulled all the feathers out and he gave it to the monk. Now, what's the second part of the service? What do I do next? He said. And the monk said, Very good, give me the chicken, come back in the morning. So he went home, he didn't know what the heck he was up to. In the morning, he came to the temple again. First thing, he said, Now, what do I do? And the monk gave him the chicken back and said, Now, go back to the market on the same road you came last night, pick up all the feathers and put them back in the chicken. <laughs> he said, I can't do that. I probably won't even be able to find the feathers. They don't put them back again. They're taken out. And the monk did the last part of the ceremony. He said, Sir, that's the same. Everything which comes out of your mouth is like a feather plucked from a chicken last night. Once it's out, you can't put it back in again. A lot of the time, you can't even find it. <laughs> Once it's out, it's gone. And that's a chicken ceremony for you. <laughs> which, which shows you that you better be careful what you say, what you speak, because as soon as it comes out of your mouth, you can't catch it and put it back in again. And that was the meaning of the ceremony. It was just a skillful means, a way of teaching someone to be more mindful, more careful of what they say. That's all. And most ceremonies started that way. Something which is very simple, as a very sharp and wise, skillful means invented by some monk or nun many, many years ago to actually to help a particular situation and somehow it gets frozen in some sort of ceremony which people keep on doing time and time again thinking it has to be done this way and if you don't you're going to go to hell or even worse. And now this is one of the problems with ceremonies. Fortunately, essential from the very beginning of uh, Buddhism he said look look at these ceremonies if they're useful for you then do them if they're not don't do them because the ceremonies it's just not just what you do it's a meaning behind it your mind the intention that is paramount and this was one of the famous and powerful teachings of the Buddha he's saying karma and what you do and its, and its uh, effect in your life and the life of others, that karma is intention. It was an equal, like E equals MC squared. Karma is your intention, is your meaning, your goal. It's a mental thing more than anything else. And that would actually just put it right where it really matters. It does not matter what the ceremony is or what you do. What's most important is why you're doing it, the meaning behind it. That is what is really important. However, for people who have got mindfulness, carefulness, and they know what they're doing in their minds, they can actually see their intentions and they can actually guide their intentions in a proper way. Sure, for such people you don't need to do ceremonies. You can just make that resolution, you can see exactly what you want to do and, and that works, that's good karma. However, for most people, just thinking about it, just their mind is just so muddled that they need something more than just intention. They need to make it physical. They need actually to do something. And this is actually where we take these mental intentions and we sort of bring them out into the world in some sort of action or some sort of speech in order to reinforce and make those inner intentions more clear to ourselves and clear to others. And that's what the meaning of ceremonies are. An externalization of these inner intentions 
to make it more profound, more pronounced, so we can hear it, we can know it, and so can others. Which is why we have ceremonies. It is why when a person moves house, they want a ceremony. When they get married, they want a ceremony. When they become a monk, they want a ceremony. Even when they become a Buddhist, they want a ceremony. When they die, they want a ceremony. And, and as a monk, I have to do all those ceremonies. <laughs> and I'm getting fed up with it. Because <laughs> the ceremonies get more and more complicated, because people forget what the meaning is. Is there one of the troubles? You know, sometimes you get like a house blessing. And they don't want it once, they want it every year, simply because the person next door had it every year. And they said, you went to their house, you have to come to mine. And then what, this is actually what happened, those people in Sri Lanka, you know what happened. You went to a house and you did a little bit of chanting. And then somebody else wanted some longer chanting. You sent three monks to one house, but the other house, because you know, it was just convenient, you had five monks, so they want five monks as well. Why do you only send three monks to us? We want five also. And then someone else said, no, we're, we've given more donations than they have. Send seven monks. As if the number of monks you know, means that they're a better family. And not only that, the number of chants you do. So you know, can you chant, you know, not just for you know, half an hour, can you chant for one hour? And it got so bad in Sri Lanka that now you have these ceremonies where monks have to chant all night. <laughs> Literally. You know, from late in the evening and they don't finish until the morning. And what are you doing that for? What's the meaning of that? Actually, what you're doing is, I remember Venerable Gunaratna telling this, sometimes that because he was the only monk, he had to chant, he had a cold, and he had a terrible sore throat for days afterwards. What have you done to this poor monk? And what's the meaning of this? I saw this happen when I was a young monk in Thailand, because in those days, in these monasteries, they used to actually keep the bodies before they would cremate them. And it was getting so ridiculous that you keep your, your, so your, your father, your grandfather in the monastery, sort of embalmed in this big building, you know, just full of um, coffins. And the idea was, the longer you kept them, so you know, the more times every six months or every year you'd you know, do a sort of a donation to the temple. And some people kept on keeping these coffins, not just one year, two years, three years, four years, five years, and it became like keeping up with the Joneses. You know, how long have you kept your father? Only five years? Oh, I've kept him ten years. <laughs> and it got absolutely ridiculous. Everybody was keeping their coffins on and on. No one would, bear it. No one would actually do any ceremonies simply because it was just like a status thing. Until the abbot has to say, everyone gets burnt this week. <laughs> and that's the only way they could stop that rubbish. And sometimes these ceremonies get out of hand. So we have to know what the meaning of these ceremonies really are. What's the meaning of a funeral ceremony? What's the meaning of a marriage ceremony? When we don't have ceremonies at all, sometimes the, there's no meaning going on. It's like, you know, when, like a boy and a girl, they just decide to live together. When there's no ceremony involved, it's a different ball game. When you have a little ceremony there, what it actually means, the marriage ceremony, is that you know, these two people, they come up and they want a religious ceremony. I'm very happy to do that because I realize this will give their marriage meaning. It will give their commitment meaning. 
they come together and they make this affirmation not just to each other but to all their friends and relations and if they've got some sort of spiritual person they look up to some priest or monk or something or nun in front of them because look we really respect you and we wanted something spiritual to say I really mean this I'm not just saying it when you do a ceremony like that with all the preparations what it really means is when you say those words they are powerful much more powerful than if you just came up to your you know, your loved one the one you're going to marry say you know, I love you now I'm going to commit myself to you, we're married now, okay? Yeah, sure, good enough. <laughs> Even though that you may have that love, that actualization, that verbalization, that ceremony does give power to the intention. And that's the whole meaning of these ceremonies, is somehow emphasizing what's in the heart, what's in the mind. And that's why we do marriage ceremonies. And the point is, it doesn't matter what that ceremony is. There is no fixed Buddhist marriage ceremony that has to be done this way and it can't be done any other ways. The whole point is that we want to get this intention, the meaning of the heart of the ceremony, and actually bring it to life by whether it's words, whether it's music, whether it's actions or whatever, to emphasize so it has more psychological meaning. And it's the same with a funeral ceremony. What is the right funeral ceremony for a Buddhist? It doesn't matter exactly what you do. What's important is you have the meaning in your heart. Look, you want to sort of release this person who you've been with for many years, who you've loved, you've spent time with, you've enjoyed your, their, their company, you want to release them so they can go off to a new birth. But also you want to release your heart, you know, the pain, the attachment, the grief which is in there. It's a letting go ceremony. That's why that people, when they have like an idea of a Buddhist ceremony or any religious ceremony, you don't need to freeze it in the past. You can innovate. And that's why look, sometimes what people do is they take these helium balloons outside, they let them go. It's, you can actually see the symbolism there. Now you have a balloon and it floats up into the sky. It's a beautiful symbolism of in your heart you're meaning to let this person go, let the past go, to float up somewhere. And I mentioned this in my book. I went to a ceremony, a, a funeral ceremony yesterday. I do so many funerals. I spend so much time in a crematorium. Sometimes I think I should just camp out there and. <laughs> and wait for the next one. <laughs> but, like all the time, we have, again, uh, stuck in this idea of, you know, first of all, it has to be burials, it has to be in the mausoleum, and people are saying just how much it costs to go in these mausoleums. Please keep it simple. It's the meaning of just, whatever's the possibility of letting a person go, fine, let them go. One of the best ways, this is the old, even in uh, Buddhism we used to do this, it's not just a Tibetan way, this was actually done in Thailand years ago, just the sky burials. They just put the, the body out in certain places and the vultures would come and eat it all. It's called recycling. <laughs> <laughs> and it's the environmentally the best possible way of disposing of a human body. 
And it's a wonderful way, because you're actually feeding birds. Or you give it to science. You, you give your organs you know, to um, whoever needs them. Be an organ donor. And sometimes people say, oh, ceremonies, you know, you can't do it that way. You've got to sort of bury the whole body. Or if you give like your liver, you know, to somebody who needs it, then when you go to heaven, you won't have one. <laughs> Crikey. <laughs> That's not true. If you give your liver to someone, you'll have three or four in heaven. You'll have an extra one, because whatever you give, you get back many times over. <laughs> if you give your eye, you probably get a third eye in the next life. I don't know. But certainly, whatever you give, you always get back again. So please understand the meaning of these things and don't just get stuck in these old little ceremonies which you know, sometimes make people, especially relations, so scared of what they're doing to their loved ones. And so that you know, when we have these ceremonies and these cremations, the first time in Karakata, whenever you put the these cremations, they'll try to imitate burials. And so every time you put that, um, uh, they still have this in Karakata, you put the, uh, the box on the, uh, the dyer and you press the button, another one has to press the button, and it goes down, as if it's being buried. Now what does that mean to people? Going down. <laughs> Most stupid thing to do. And it's always the case, whenever they press the button, it goes down. Maybe you've got everybody nice and peaceful, you've talked about Dhamma, you've got people understanding, it's not the person, it's only their body, they've already left, you know that's not them. Oh, they start crying every time you press that button. And so I put this in my book, why don't we actually, if, we, if we're going to have ceremonies, let's innovate and make them beautiful ceremonies. And so I put this in my book, next time we build a crematorium, Let's, when we press the button, let's have the body going up. <laughs> a hydraulic lift is all you need. And the body goes up and have this beautiful, like, um, uh, what's it, the, the, uh, the clouds of dry ice. In like big clouds. And get this incredible, beautiful music happening, like heavenly music, like chamber music or some orchestral or, or whatever. And this beautiful heavenly music as it goes through a trap door in the roof and when the ice disappears, it's just gone. <laughs> now, wouldn't that be uplifting? Wouldn't that be meaningful for most people? They think, wow, that's really great. <laughs> now, that would be a ceremony. It's an example of a meaningful ceremony. You're letting it go and you're encouraging people. The person is actually going upwards and away. But I remember when I first mentioned that some years ago, somebody said that that would take away from the integrity of the service. Because they say that sometimes they know that person in the box would never go up there. <laughs> <laughs> so, to adapt the ceremony, I decided we could have three buttons. <laughs> one for up, one for down, and one for sideways, <laughs> in case you, you know, because most people you don't really know, some good, some bad, so do the sideways button. And I thought to make funerals really interesting, we could have a vote on which button to press. <laughs> Give everybody a reason for going. <laughs> but the point is, 
in these. Like this ceremony, obviously I wouldn't do that because ceremonies have to be meaningful. And obviously if you just make it too um, ridiculous, it's not really a funeral ceremony. It doesn't really match the feelings and the people who are attending. So the ceremony has to be appropriate. And that's why that you know, if ever you've been to my funeral ceremonies, and if you haven't yet, one day you will. <laughs> you will find that no two are ever the same, and you do always adapt. And this is one of the trouble with sort of organised religions. Sometimes the ceremonies are just too frozen, and you can't adapt them to time and place. You have to adapt them. And whether it's a marriage ceremony, you have to adapt to the people. Because the ceremonies are there for the people, the people aren't there for the ceremonies. The ceremonies are to give meaning to what's in their hearts, not meaning to what's in the scriptures, meaning to what's in people's hearts. That's what the ceremonies are there for. And that's how we've adapted these ceremonies over the years. And Buddhism has always been adapting. Like anything else, you adapt or you die, you become irrelevant. And I think there's too many parts of Buddhism have become irrelevant. And it's usually the, whether it's the Burmese people, or the Sri Lankan people, the Thai people, it's they are the ones who tell me, look, you know, we like to come here rather than go to the Thai temple, the Burmese temple, the Sri Lankan temple, because it's not relevant for us anymore. Our kids don't understand it. They do all this chanting, all this bowing, but what's it for? No one ever explains it to them. It's not really relevant to their hearts. And sometimes that happens with the Christian churches, soon it will happen with the, the uh, Muslim services or any other services. You know, religion and spirituality has to have meaning, otherwise why come? So this chanting business, you know, what's, what does chanting actually do for you? And if we do chanting, number one, if we know what the meaning is, oh my goodness, I can really inspire you. This is a monk, I love chanting. And the reason I love it, because I know Pali, you know, the, the, the chants there. And for me, like Pali, is this beautiful language, the language of the Buddha. And some of the words, like any language, you can't sometimes translate the, the meanings. You can get close, but you, know, you can't actually convey from one culture to another what those original meanings are. So sometimes when I chant in, in Pali, you know, sometimes to myself, not to do any ceremony, it's just for the meaning, it inspires me. And it teaches me these incredible teachings of the Buddha. And that's why the, you know, sometimes when I listen to Pali chanting, I get all emotional. It means something to me. But if you've never understood Pali, if you don't understand what these words mean, what's the point to you? You Certainly you don't get that benefit from understanding the meaning. But sometimes you can get the benefit of doing chanting simply because it makes you feel peaceful. Now there's something which resonates in, in, inside of you. Which is why that, you know, to this day that many Catholics you know, will still want to go back to the Latin Mass. I don't know, it's got something to it. It may be just the conditioning from the past which makes them feel peaceful, which inspires them, which gives them this inspiration. Fine, do it, if it works for you. And this is actually why that sometimes you know, we have chanting, long chanting, small chanting, in this language in this or that language, just to suit the different people you know, who, who come along. 
Some people will like a lot of chanting, it has meaningful, meaning for them. It's like the same as the, the inner chants you do. Sometimes when people do meditation, they have these chants, these mantras they say to each other, or say to themselves rather. And I know that in some traditions, like in TM, you're not supposed to tell what your mantra is. And sometimes they say that some mantras are more powerful than others. And you know, in Thailand, you use the mantra Budho, which is a very famous meditation mantra. But that works for Thais, who've got a feeling for what the word Buddha means. And so that is like almost like a little, very easy ceremony, but it's powerful. Because these are people who've been brought up with Buddhism, who've you know, known the word Buddha since the time they were very small. But you find it doesn't really work for some people, for Westerners especially. So because of that, that I've developed another mantra which I found incredibly powerful for Westerners. This is my, one of the, I always teach this in my retreats. The Buddha mantra, you're supposed to, as you breathe in, you're supposed to you know, say the word silently to yourself, Bud, as you breathe out, Ho, Bud, Ho, Bud, Ho, with your breath. But the one I which I found more, more successful for Westerners is when they breathe in, they recite the word to themselves silently, shut, as they breathe out, up. <laughs> shut, up, shut. And that's much more powerful than Buddha. Because <laughs> it means something to them, it tells them what they're supposed to be doing. Shut up, stupid. So this is actually what the ceremonies are there to do, to give you meaning and to assist you in whatever the part is supposed to be. So, you know, we have all these other little ceremonies, like, you know, when you become a Buddhist, sometimes people come up to me and say, look, I want to be a Buddhist, what do I do? Do I get sort of like baptized or something? <laughs> Certainly not this way, they'll give you a cold. And even that little ceremony, that was actually not a Christian ceremony, that was a very old Indian ceremony. You know, just you know, washing in the Ganges. That's the, that's still going on now. But even in the time of the Buddha, all these Brahmins would go and wash in this river and wash in that river. And this is to show you how iconoclastic the Buddha was. You know, when this Brahmin said, "No, you know, you should go and bathe in the river as well. You know, wash away your sins," the Buddha. That's what he said to the Buddha. And the Buddha said, "Look, if that was really true, then all the fish and the frogs which live in that river, they'll all be enlightened now because they've been washed every day of their lives." And that's in the ancient suttas. So much for baptism. Because all the, <laughs> all the fish have been baptized so many times. But that, <laughs> that doesn't make you wise. That doesn't wash away anything. So the point is, the Buddha was actually very um, iconoclastic. He said, look, challenge it. Think it out. Be reasonable. Work it out. It's not that these uh, ceremonies are wrong. They are very useful if you understand what their meaning is and you use it in the right way to make the meaning in your heart, in your mind, more pronounced. Which is why that you know, if a person becomes a Buddha, Buddhism, uh, Buddhist, we don't baptize them. We just three refuges and five precepts. This beautiful little ceremony, and it is so simple, done in a couple of minutes. But the reason we do that is simply because sometimes the person feels they're a Buddhist. They want to sort of commit. They feel inside. There's a meaning in there, but they want to externalize it. And when they sort of you know, take this little ceremony of the three refuges, and what that really means to them is what's in their heart 
than speaking out in front of somebody else. And it means much more. It gives that intention, that karma, more power. In the same way, when you go through a marriage ceremony, that's much more powerful than if you just decide to live with somebody. In the same way, if you go through a little precept ceremony, it really means something. Especially if it's with your favourite monk or nun. If it's with your friends. If it's with the people who mean a lot to you. What you're saying is, I like this path and I want to follow it. It's the same with taking these five precepts. I don't know how many times in Buddhist ceremonies I give these five precepts. And I do this because sometimes uh, people need to keep hearing them because they're not keeping them. But this is actually how the ties. Please, uh, please, uh, I'm sure the Sri Lankans, well actually I'll, t- I'll, I'll hit the Sri Lankans as well. Before I've, I hit the ties first of all, then Sri Lankans. I'm sure the Burmese do the same and the Westerners are just as bad. Some years ago, we were given the five precepts, you know, every Buddhist ceremony to the Thai people. And they'd be putting their hands up to take the five precepts, as they usually do. And then we saw that some of the people had a finger down like this. We couldn't figure out what they were meant. I mean, you're supposed to put all your fingers up. You know, it's like the, the, just the way that you, know, you see people here when they sort of bow afterwards, they put their hands up like this. What are they doing with one finger down? And so we asked them, so what do you do? And they figured out themselves, it became like a little fad amongst the lay Buddhists at the time, that if they were in a ceremony and everyone else was chanting the five Buddhist precepts, they wanted to do the chanting as well. But when they put one finger down, even though they were chanting all five, it means they only keep four. <laughs> That's what it meant. So they chant all five, but they still, they'd only keep four. It's like crushing your fingers behind your back. And once you saw this, I was actually more looking more carefully and sure enough I saw some people with two fingers down <laughs> some people with three some people with all their fingers down <laughs> and they're still chanting they weren't wanting to keep it at all and that, that is the meaningless ceremonies and if you don't get to keep these precepts don't do the chanting and it's the same this was in the uh, in Melbourne the place which I go there is many, many Sri Lankan devotees and if they're listening to this, I've told you this before, that sometimes you give the five precepts to them on Waysack Day and then they go out to their car and get out the whiskey and start drinking, even in the car park of the temple. And what's the point of that? You know, it's okay if you're going to you know, drink, drink, but don't sort of you know, keep the precepts because what you're saying is not what you're doing. It's like an empty ceremony. It makes the whole religion meaningless. It's because of meaningless ceremonies like that that people actually turn away from religion. If a person wants to keep those precepts, you know, if their own free will, they don't have to, you can come to any Buddhist ceremony and you don't have to keep the precepts. Everybody is welcome. You don't reject anybody. There's no excommunication in Buddhism. Everybody is welcome. It's up to you where you're at in your life. If this is what you want to do, fine. If it's don't work, if you can't do it, fine. You'll be treated equally. It's a marvelous thing about you know, Buddhism. It's the equality of the way you look at and and, uh, and relate to other people. There's no judgment that one person is better than another. In the same way, there's no judgment in a school. Which child is more intelligent than the other, the one in grade 12 or the one in grade 1? 
You just you can't compare people. People are Children in grade one have only just come to school. The children in grade twelve have done twelve years. Some people, this might be your first human birth after many lower realms. Or some people have been reborn as a human being many times or come from the Deva realms. How can you compare people or judge them? So if a person can't keep any precepts, they can still come here. And I can still be their friend. And they're still welcome to join the Buddhist society. So we don't have any judgment there. So a person, they don't need to do these ceremonies you know, just to, you know, for some sort of uh, status at all. It should come from the heart. And this is why we do little ceremonies like the five precepts, because we feel we want to take them in front of a monk. And for the Westerners, it's marvellous, and I'm very proud of the Westerners, because sometimes some of you have only taken it once in front of the monk. Maybe on Wayside Day, you come up here, you say, I really want to do this five precepts, I want to live by this. You take it once and you keep it for the rest of your life. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. That's inspiring. And sometimes it may be a Burmese person. I've already hit the Sri Lankans and the, the Thais, now the Burmese turn. Sometimes the Burmese, they don't know how many times they've taken the five precepts, but they still don't keep them. And to me, which one is better? In the sense of I'm more happy that someone uses a ceremony for its purpose. They want to really say to themselves, yes, this is what I want to do. This is my guidelines for life. And they follow those. Same with like, the ceremony of bowing. Because sometimes some of you would come here and you see some people bow and some people don't bow. That makes me so happy. If everybody bowed, I'd be a bit afraid that you're not really understanding what goes on here. You just, many people will be bowing just because other people do so just out of you know, fear or out of etiquette, not really knowing what the meaning is. If you're bowing to something, it has to come from your heart. In other words, a bowing is like just a respect. In the same way that you know, even in Western culture, bowing is not Asian. In Western culture, you know, you're supposed to bow. I remember you know, being taught how to bow at school. You know, girls used to curtsy. If you saw the queen, you would bow. <laughs> whatever it was never seen the queen anyway but that's what it's supposed to do <laughs> and the whole purpose behind that is just, you know, just all, all, all people the head is very high what you're doing you're lowering your head for somebody else you know, it's like, almost like more, respect, more respectful whatever you lower your head down to and something else is higher than you that's what you show respect to you may have seen me sometimes, you know, my blessing a Buddha statue, I hold it up here. You know, what I'm doing is just holding above my head. Or in like Sri Lanka, sometimes you carry relics, you're holding above your head. What you're doing is, I really respect what this means. So the, the act of bowing is just an act of showing respect, something which you really think is worthy, something which you really love, you see value in, is what you worship. Worship means worthship. And so because of that, I was taught a long time ago, whenever you bow, don't just bow as a ceremony. Be mindful, what's in your heart? Why are you bowing? And to me, whenever I bow to that Buddha statue, or any Buddha statue, I don't bow to pieces of metal. That's why when people say, oh, all you Buddhists, you just bow to idols. They don't bow to idols. If you want to find an idol, go watch was Australian Idol or American Idol. This is not I'd never seen the Buddha on any of these shows. 
you bow to what that thing represents. So when you bow to a Buddha statue, I bow to virtue, peace and wisdom, compassion. Basically, for those of you who know the Pali, Sila Samadhi Panya. The virtue is what I bow to, first of all. And I, I love virtue, goodness, you know, a good speech, kind speech, gentle actions, you know, which is not harmful at all. I really, really value that. And so that's what I bow to, because you know, to me the, the Buddha is a symbol of virtue, of goodness. He never went angry or hit anybody, or you know, turned people out of any temples, or shouted at anybody. You're reading his life story, you're reading the accounts from his life, which you know, you can, there's only account we have, it's believable. He was this very good person. And so I bow to that, it's a symbol of virtue for me. If ever I you know, think of my teacher, Ajahn Chah, he was just so virtuous, so gentle, so compassionate and kind. It's so easy to bow to that as a symbol of virtue. That's why many people, you know, monks like me, have got a picture of him on the shrine. And I don't worship the, the picture, it's just a piece of paper. But I worship what it represents to me, virtue. And peace, the meditation, stillness. It's the best thing I've ever done in my life to be able to meditate. Somebody was asking me this question the other day. When was the first time you fell in love? And I said, I fell in love when I first meditated. I fell in love with peace. I've never fallen out in love with peace. My first and only true love. <laughs> peace, stillness, that's just delicious. So I like to hang out with peace as much as I can. And I worship that peace. So that's what I bow down. I bow down to peace, to stillness, that incredible, tasty, delicious stillness in deep meditation. And the last thing which I bow down to is like wisdom and compassion. I put those two together. Because you now I know the life story of the Buddha. Just so compassionate, so wise. And we haven't got really a word which encapsulates both of those, but they have to go together. There's no compassion without wisdom. There's no wisdom without compassion. They go together. I bow down to that. I worship that. It's so important. Wisdom and compassion. So when I actually bow down to that, when I'm actually saying in my heart, the meaning behind it is these things are valuable. They're really important to me. Because they're important to me, I raise them above my head. And the only way I can do that, because I can't lift that Buddha up, it's too heavy. I've got to put my head down. I put my head down, I value that. And every time I do that, mindfully, in other words, I remember what I'm doing that for, it's not just some empty ceremony. What it really does is reinforce those qualities inside me. Every time I value things like virtue, peace, wisdom, compassion, it means psychologically I reinforce my inclination to make those qualities my own. Every time I remember virtue, I will become more virtuous. Every time I value peace, I will find more time in my life for such silence, instead of rushing around so much. And every time I bow down and worship compassion, I know I'll become a much more compassionate person as a result. The ceremony has meaning. 
and the meaning produces the effect. This is what, why we do these things. And so that when we understand the meaning behind these ceremonies, it gives the whole thing, this this power, this life, and even the Buddha statue becomes meaningful. And we can have them in their houses, not just as some curio, because Buddha statues are becoming fashionable now. Just like some people wear these red Kabbalah strings, it's just in to have a Buddha statue. But it's a waste of time having it there just you know, as, a, as, a, as a piece without knowing what the meaning is behind it. So know what the meaning is, just to remind you of those things. I remember going to All Saints College about 15 years ago. An old headmaster of that school would give a talk on Buddhism. He invited me into his study for a cup of tea, just a chat. And the first thing I noticed, on his desk, he didn't have very much, he had a Buddha statue on his net de- uh, desk. And this was a Christian school. I said, what are you doing with a Buddha statue on your desk? I can't see any Christian symbols here. Do the governors know about this? <laughs> I was only joking. And he said, look, you know, I'm not a Buddhist, I'm a Christian, but every time I look at that Buddha statue, it gives me peace and serenity. I said, you know how to worship the Buddha. You don't have to be a Christian. Because worshipping, what you're worshipping, what's in that smile, in that serenity of a Buddha. You're worshipping the peace. And it's true, every time you look at that, you're reminded of peace. And that makes you more peaceful in your difficult job. Yeah, that's right. Now that's what these ceremonies are all about. And understanding their meaning, and then making that meaning more powerful by going through some sort of ritual. That's why our forest tradition, our Theravada tradition, now it started from the Buddha, just taking away all of the extras which weren't really necessary. And what was necessary, giving it meaning, ordination ceremonies had meaning. If you come to any of the ceremonies which we've had, you can see there's something there. Even giving food to the monks has meaning. We always tell you that you're giving life to the monks and to the nuns. You're allowing us to actually to teach, to practice. So by so doing, you know, you're part of the team. You get a piece of the action, literally. Whatever the monks or the nuns do, whatever meditation they achieve, they can't do it by themselves. It's teamwork. And you're part of that. This Buddhist society of West Australia, it's not just a committee, it's not just monks and nuns. You are part of it. So this is when we do any dana. You're part of this. We all help in our own different ways. And that's why that sometimes, you know, people have actually compared sort of their sanghas, the monks and nuns, to the footy team. And you're all our supporters, you're our fan club. So when we do well, you know, you, when we win the sort of premiership, then you really get excited. <laughs> because we're in it together. Just like, you know, if it's Fremantle or the, the Eagles, you know, if they do well, you know you, you know, you might be in the stands, you're not even kicking a ball. But when they win, it's like you've kicked the goals as well. It's the same way when any monk becomes enlightened, you also kick the goal as well. It's where we get inspired. So this is actually where we have the meaning of why we go to temples. And one of the other reasons why I'm giving this talk is there's some ceremonies coming up soon 
on Sunday there's a ceremony at the nuns' monastery to start the range retreat. And the week afterwards at our monks' monastery to start the range retreat. These are ceremonies. Why go there? Why actually take all this food to the monks? They're already too fat. They don't need any more food. If ever you go there, either to, on Sunday to the nuns' monastery or the week afterwards at the monks' monastery, you see so much food there. This happened to one of our monks when he first went to England and some of the Thai people served him food, all having this big bowl. You see the bowls we have. And this Englishman came along and he didn't understand anything about Buddhism. And he looked inside this monk's bowl and he said, Bloody hell! There's enough here to feed a bleeding army, he said. Please excuse me, but that's what he said. Enough food in there to feed a bleeding army. <laughs> there was a lot of food, but that wasn't the point. The point was that people needed to share. People needed to give. The monk didn't need that much. This happens to me all the time. Sometimes, sometimes, it's very rare, you manage actually to choose your own food and just get the right amount. And then somebody comes along and says, you didn't take any of mine. <laughs> Put it in. <laughs> and so, all, every time I eat, it's a ceremony. It's not for me. And as a ceremony is, the meaning of that ceremony is not to feed me, that's not the m- meaning. I've already eaten too fat. The meaning of that ceremony is actually to give people the chance to love and care. And we usually express that by giving. Giving is the most beautiful ceremony because it's always a, it's a mean. What, what do you mean when you give something to somebody? It's an expression of love. If it's Valentine's Day, you give something. That's how you express your love. When you get married, you exchange rings. It's the birthday of your kid. You want to give them something. And this is if it's your favourite monks or no, you want to give them something, please, because I respect you. So they give me things and I give it to somebody else afterwards if I don't you know, eat it myself. Or it doesn't really matter. The point is this giving becomes a beautiful ceremony. And the meaning of it is, is people are saying, we're sharing with you, we care for you, I just feel like I just want to give something. And is know what, what, how terrible it is sometimes when you've got no one to give to? No one you really care for? And we're very, the lonely people in this world. I remember just my grandmother. Whenever I used to visit my grandmother's house, she, you know, sometimes in the middle of the afternoon, do you want some chips? Didn't matter when, she just, you know, peel some potatoes, chip them up, and make me some chips. Anytime. My mother would never do that. It's bad for my health and I was going to eat a dinner afterwards. My granny didn't mind. She just wanted to give me things. That's why I love my granny. (laughs) 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 It just never, it didn't matter if it was, and I needed it or not. That was not the point. She just wanted to give. Isn't it lovely that when we have these beautiful ideas, we just want to give to each other? So that's why, it doesn't matter being a monk, nun or whatever, if anyone ever gives you anything, please, please accept it. Because they need to give it to you. Even if it's a policeman who's caught you speeding, they need to give you... (laughs) 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 That's not the giving which I really meant. (laughs) 
But no, it's just the way that we express our love. And so the giving is a beautiful ceremony. And it has meaning to it. And that's why just most religious festivals, festivals means like feast evils. That's where the word festival comes from. It's always a feast in the beginning. And it's just all religions do this. What's the point of having feasts? It's not the eating which is the point, it's the giving and the preparing. That's what the point is. It's a way of expressing your care, your love. If you know what you're doing it for, all this service has incredible meaning. And sometimes, you know, it doesn't really matter if you're doing a fundraiser. We had a fundraiser last week for our retreat center. It does not matter how much money is raised. What's most important is that people have the opportunity to come together, have a great time, enjoy themselves in doing something good. That is what's most important in the ceremony. What's amount given is not important. Why it is given is important. So we do have ceremonies in religion. We do have ceremonies. We make up our own ceremonies sometimes. We have the incredible, powerful ceremony for the forgiveness ceremony. I should remember, uh, mention this. This is part of you know, the Buddhism which I've grown up with. If ever any like two monks have an argument in the monastery, in my monastery, I've seen this years ago, Number one, it doesn't matter who's right and who's wrong. Never think about that at all. Usually the smart one, the one who gets all the kudos, is the one who asks forgiveness first. doesn't matter if they're right or wrong. I ask forgiveness first. And I've taught that, encouraged that, and so monks are pretty good at that in my monastery. They just rush up to be the first to say sorry. And in order, if you just say sorry to someone, like, you know, the, with our government trying to have some reconciliation with the indigenous uh, owners of our land, just saying sorry is not enough. It has to be done with a ceremony, with meaning behind it. Because when we do like a ceremony with meaning, then it's more powerful sorry than just saying I'm sorry. So we always, try our tradition is to get some flowers and incense or something and put it on a tray. But for many years, I had hay fever. So I said, look, stop following that stupid ceremony. You're saying forgiveness, you give me all these flowers and they're making me sneeze even more. So you have more things to say sorry for afterwards. So a tray of anything you want to give or something. If you want to say sorry to your wife because of something you did or sorry to your husband, doesn't matter what you put on a trade, some sort of gift, find something they like, you know, which you think they really need. And just say, no, listen darling, I don't know what I've done or said, you know, you're my wife, I love you. Now please, I ask forgiveness. I'm a human being, I make mistakes. And there's no set formula, you say it from your heart. You make it up as you go along. And then that ceremony has meaning. And when you do that ceremony, it's so powerful because it moves the other person. And the other person says sorry back and they give you a gift back. It's a beautiful ceremony which keeps people living in harmony and peace together. The forgiveness ceremony. And sometimes you have to forgive yourself as well if you've done something bad. 
So you do a little forgiveness ceremony. You can make up that ceremony as you go along. Some people do make it up. They come here of an evening. And they just give a flower to the Buddha or something. Or light some incense. Or light a candle. Whatever it is. It doesn't matter. And they just, by asking forgiveness of a Buddha, they're asking forgiveness for themselves. It's only a piece of metal there. It's no magic. But the magic is in what it represents. It's symbol. And that way, a person, if they've done something terribly, terribly wrong, they can come up, just offer a flower or something, and look at that Buddha, and see the compassion and peace. If they're a Christian, they can go to church in front of the altar and think of a compassionate Jesus. It doesn't matter. What would Jesus say? What would a Buddha say? They would say, I forgive you. So coming to do that ceremony by coming here or going to a church or doing something it actualizes what's in your heart. It makes the karma, the intention more powerful by doing a little ceremony. That's what ceremonies are all about. That's their meaning. It's not that Buddhism doesn't have its ceremonies. We do, but we try and make them meaningful. If I don't understand them, I just don't do them. There's some ceremonies which I'm sure if I really understood, I should really do them, but I've got my limitations. The same with you. If you find bowing meaningful, do it. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian, a Catholic, or whatever. I told this story just before I came in here. I gave the, an assembly, this little sermon at the assembly at Christ Church Grammar School some years ago, a couple of years ago. When I walked in there before, where the kids had already assembled in there, I was outside with Karen Frank Sheehan, the chaplain, and the headmaster, and myself, just the three of us. And the headmaster, who didn't really know me, turned around and said, look, there's an altar in there, a Christian altar. You know, the canon and I, will, we will bow, but you don't need to bow, you're a Buddhist. And I said, why not? I said, I demand my right to bow. <laughs> <laughs> and he asked me, Why? And I said, because I can find something in there which I value. And that's what I'm about to, what I value in that altar. So when you understand what the ceremony is, there's nothing wrong with a Buddhist bowing at a Christian shrine. Nor is there anything wrong with a Christian bowing to a Buddha. You're not bowing to an idol. You're bowing to a, a quality, something which you see, which you worship, which you find is wonderful and beautiful. And when you bow to that, that ceremony enhances in your life, in your mind, whatever you're bowing to. That's why we have ceremonies. So, whatever ceremonies developed in Australian Theravada Buddhism, they'll always be meaningful. They sometimes we can trace them back to the time of the Buddha, or trace them back to the time of Christ or whatever. It doesn't matter. What's important is we don't ossify them and freeze them. And it has to be done this way, it can't be done otherwise. Otherwise it dehumanizes them. It becomes organized religion. And for those of you who have been here many times, you know this is not organized Buddhism. This is completely disorganized. I've gone over time. There's always things wrong. Our internet is down the last week. This is completely disorganized, chaotic human Buddhism. <laughs> That's why I love it. So thank you. This is a talk today on ceremonies and unceremonious Buddhism.
<laughs> so, any questions or comments about the talk this evening? Yes. I think that there's a wonderful thing to go and visit you know, other sort of shrines of other religions. Now, just because the main reason you do that is actually just to worship the mutual respect. And I make that ceremony of, you know, that you want to respect other people, not necessarily agreeing with them. You know, we all have our different interpretations of the world and of truth. We may not agree with you. But at least no, I respect and I worship our friendliness between different peoples. And it's just so important and necessary that we actually learn to live with each other. And it's just, you can't have too many more terrorist bombs. And it's how much chaos and how many tears, how much pain that causes. And it would be marvellous to invite every terrorist to come to the Buddhist Society of West Australia and worship here, and I'd go and worship at your shrines. That's our deal. It would be friendliness to say, look, we're not against you, we're on your side. We're on the side of human beings and understanding each other and respecting each other. And that's what we can worship, mutual respect. especially if they're positive places you're asking is it worthwhile to go out to places like Ayers Rock or the holy places in India and absorb into their vibrations yes, wonderful thing to do so but you know, sometimes it's not good unless you're very strong spiritually to actually to absorb into the negative emotions you tend too much to go to the negative places sometimes you just get more and more uh, weakened, depressed so maybe every now and again, maybe once in your life, if you have the opportunity to visit Auschwitz, to feel the, the energies of what happened there. But if you go there, just balance that by going to inspiring places as well. Because if you just go to the negative places, sometimes you lose your hope for the world. You just become just not one-sided. But it's great to be able to go to those places where amazing, wonderful things happened. And it inspires you. You worship at those shrines of beauty, of wonder, and it makes you a better person. It inspires you. That's why it's a, one of my sayings is you don't learn from the mistakes of the past, you learn from the successes of the past much better. It's a much better way of learning. Don't dwell too much on the mistakes and the faults and things which went wrong. You don't learn so well that way. But learn from the beauty, from the successes, from the wonderful things of life. And you tend to imitate them more. You learn from successes much better than you learn from failures. Don't start thinking what went wrong. Try and find out what went right and do it again and again and again. <laughs>
Yeah. Yeah, you ask it, it's many people these days, they decide between them that it's not worthwhile going through a ceremony when they live together. And uh, is that uh, okay? Of course it's okay, because these ceremonies have to have meaning for you. If you find it has meaning, going through a ceremony, go for it. There's nothing wrong with ceremonies, but there's nothing wrong with no ceremonies. That's why, that personally, I'm very pro having ceremonies for gay couples to commit themselves. You know, have marriage for gays, if you like. Simply to go through some sort of ceremony. It doesn't have to be a marriage ceremony. Not, but civil ceremonies, sometimes it's just not spiritual enough. And come and do a ceremony up here. I'll be very happy to give some blessing water or whatever. And that's a Exactly. You say, what is meaningful is a personal thing. It's great. But sometimes the ceremonies help to make that meaning more powerful. Sometimes not. Yeah, according to the conditioning, yeah. If you, some people are very averse to all ceremonies because they've just been over-ceremonized for the for the whole of their life, and life becomes just one long ceremony. And I know that because sometimes in these monasteries I used to hang out as a young monk. Sometimes the ceremonies would go on for so long, and I couldn't understand what they meant. And so you became negative. You turned away from it. There's many people in the Western world, all these ceremonies that you have to do, you have to do it this way, you can't do it another way. Why, why are you doing this? Remember this one fellow, he's a, uh, an ex-Jew married to a Thai and his father died. His father was a devout practicing Jew. And because he was his son, his eldest son, he had to go through this ceremony of tearing his shirt and beating himself, you know, his fists. He said, what am I doing that for? Just shut up, this is what you've got to do. In the end, he just got so upset he refused to do it. Because it was, you know, what are you doing that for? What's the meaning behind it? And there's sometimes some religions are just so stuck in ceremonies without any meaning that people turn away. So in a marriage ceremony, people turn away from marriage ceremony because they forget what the meaning is. It's just a meaning for, you know, the, the girl always has to have white and the groom always has black. And I've said this before, you know why the the bride has to wear white at the marriage ceremony because white is a symbol of their purity. That's why they have to wear white. The girl always has to wear white at a, at a uh, marriage ceremony. And so why does the groom have to wear black? Because it's a symbol of his, you think it out. <laughs> yeah. Can you have a more meaningful relationship? Yeah, I was hearing what you're saying. There are many people who have actually gone through no ceremonies at all. They've got wonderful, meaningful relationships. Some people have gone through ceremonies and they've got no meaning there in, in their uh, relationship at all. Correct, yeah, argue with each other. What I'm actually saying, that's very, very true. But sometimes a ceremony can help. It's not the total, there's many more factors in there which are important. 
sometimes ceremonies can help. And even if you haven't actually uh, gone through some marriage ceremony, I'm sure that in relationships which haven't gone through a formal marriage, there's many other ceremonies which you develop in your own way. And this is the point here. Don't freeze ceremonies in one particular way and no other way. Even that little ceremony is that you know you just take out your partner on the anniversary of the day you met them. You just give them a special, special little treat. Or you know, every now and again that you have on their birthday, which is a ceremony, you really treat them extra special. There's always ceremonies we have on on uh, Valentine's Day or whatever. You know, hopefully, if you want a successful relationship, you know, you give your partner something special that day. Whatever it is, ceremonies sometimes help. They're there to be made use of, but they're not there to oppress. So it doesn't have to be a marriage ceremony. But there are many other ceremonies. And I'm sure that everyone who is, has any relationship, they do some little ceremonies every now and again. Even if it's you know, a Christmas ceremony or whatever, it doesn't matter. Even as a Buddhist monk, you know, when it became 25th of December, you know, we used to, in our monastery in Thailand, we used to celebrate Christmas. When our, we used to invite Ajahn Chah over on 25th of December, every time to give a talk. And he used to come over every 25th of December to our Western monastery, you know, to spend that day with us. He was almost like our own little father, Buddhamus, you call him. This wonderful little Ajahn Chah. And that's what he used to call it. He used to call it Quit Buddhamus Day. That's what he used to call it. But you know, it was a ceremony because you know, we'd been brought up with this ceremony of you know, peace and goodwill to all beings and being extra kind to people on that day. And he said, oh yeah, we can celebrate that. We found meaning in it, even as Buddhists. So yeah, you can always... But I think I've got the meaning of the talk through today. The ceremonies are useful if you really want to, but don't be oppressed by them. Don't think they have to be done this way. I'll be all fight tooth and nail you know, when we have all these ceremonies. This is the way it's supposed to be done. Why? Do you have to, have, when you have a funeral, have to have the funeral? You have this big limousine like yesterday's, this big limousine behind. You don't need that. Go in your own car instead of wasting all this money on a big limo in the back. And don't just follow just traditions without meaning. Think it out for yourself. What is meaningful? Okay, you know, Bianca's partner, Ron Battersby, one of our uh, great members of our Buddhist society. We did his funeral ceremony here, and he went to the crematorium in his ute. He was a builder. That was that was amazing. That was really beautiful and inspiring. And just outside here, had all his friends cheered him off when he went to the crematorium. Now that's a ceremony which had meaning. He'd been for his whole life, he was like a, in the building industry. He went on his last journey to the crematorium in his ute. Now that's meaningful, that's what ceremonies should be. You don't need a big sort of uh, hearse. I'm like, not here this evening. This is father uh, many years ago. He was like a white water rafter. He spent his whole life actually doing it himself and uh, his little business of arranging for other people to do this white water rafting. So when he died, we built a little coffin for him, like trying to shape like a boat. We couldn't really do it like a boat. It had a couple of oars on the top of it. And this is like, make the ceremony meaningful. 
And that means it becomes beautiful. And I better be meaningful because it's gone over time. But it's not. We don't have to finish at nine o'clock every Friday evening.